So would you pray with me as we do that? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this new message series that we're going to be getting into. Thank you as we look at the, the letter of 1 Peter and how we can learn to live lives that honor and glorify you no matter what happens to us. Help us to change our expectations, Lord, about life here on planet Earth. Help us to change our paradigm about what to expect as a Christian who calls on the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. We pray you'll do that this morning, Lord. Change our hearts to make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So we are starting a new series this morning. Now, I don't know if you are aware of what's going on in the world. So I'm going to share a little bit with you. I don't don't really have cable anymore, so it's kind of hard sometimes to find out what's happening in the world. So I have a clip this morning that Nick's going to play for us. And it's straight off of CNN. It's two minutes. I want you to watch it, and we're going to talk about it because it has relevance to not only this message and not only what was going on in the time of 1 Peter when it was written, but it has global implications. So I want you to watch this, and we'll talk about it. Who has been watching? Who's been seeing that? Anybody kind of been keeping track of that? Some of you, which tells me a lot of you have not. That's happening in the world today. Now, here's what I'm not trying to do this morning, just so we're clear. I'm not trying to point out religious fanatics. and Yeah, we know that there's religious fanatics in every religion. I'm not trying to, to shine a light on ISIS and what's happening over there. Okay, But I want to make you aware of what is happening in the world to our brothers and sisters today. And I don't mean today in a generic sense. I mean like Sunday, August 17th, Christians are being beheaded today because they claim Jesus as their Savior. It's happening. Can you believe it? Can you believe that that is happening in this day and age? What are we to think about that? Well, hopefully Peter's got some words of instruction for us. Because although that is maybe an extreme form of of religious fanaticism, don't even need to talk about the religious beliefs of that system. I'm just pointing out that it's the Christians being persecuted. It's always the Christians being persecuted. It's always been the Christians being persecuted. So we need to think about how do we live life when we know that that is our lot in life. So we're starting a new series today, 1 Peter, about living well, how to live well. Adversity and joy, can those two thoughts actually go together? Can adversity and joy in the Christian's life and mind go together? together. Now, I know if I was to take a poll of of you folks this morning, most of you, but not all of you, most of you would say, yes, I call myself a Christian. I think even if you were to poll the country, we would probably say that we live in a Christian nation, although I I think, you know, that would need some, some real definition there before we could say that with any surety. So just to be clear, what does it mean when I say I'm a Christian? What does it mean when I say I'm going to label myself as a Christian. Well, it means that I follow the claims of Christ. It means that I worship Christ, as we just got through corporately doing. We do it every day, but we do it here together. And I love that last song that we said, I I get to love you forever and sing to you forever. What a thought that is. Yeah, we follow Jesus. We worship him. We serve him. Our lives are now servants of Christ. So we follow his claims. We believe what he said when he was here on earth. He said that he forgives sin. He said that he and only he can answer the deepest needs of our life. He said that he was God in the flesh. And he said that he was the king of God's kingdom on earth and in heaven. And because of those claims, what did the world say to him and what did the world do to him? Ignored him, in some cases. Despised him. Ridiculed him. Patronized him. Persecuted him. Ultimately killed him on a cross. And if that's the way the world feels about Jesus then, then maybe we should think that's the way the world's going to feel about us now. Here's the thought I want to start off with this morning before we even get into the text, and that is this. 
that we need to remember that Christians are not mainstream in society. We may have thought Christendom in the Western world was having a big influence, and it did for a while, but I think that influence is weakening rapidly. Christendom as a way of life, as a worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview is shrinking ever so quickly from the public mind. Look around at the world today, and you can see that Christians are being marginalized and minimized. Think about Hollywood. Anytime a movie comes out that has Christians in it, or even TV for that matter, what are Christians always uh, depicted as? You know, flaky people, you know, um, maybe goody two-shoes, intolerant probably. Look at the media, written media, for example. If anyone in the public eye or in a public position or any position, if they come out and they make a stance on a moral or a social issue, that's biblical, right? I mean, you can go to your Bible and find this is what God says about this moral or social issue. And if you do that today, you will more than likely be labeled as hateful, prejudiced, narrow-minded, or maybe you're just considered as irrelevant. Times have moved on past you. What about students and academics? Those of you with kids... I've talked to some of you. I know you're living this firsthand. In schools everywhere, the Judeo-Christian worldview is not being taught or it's being briefly mentioned in passing as the textbooks that are coming out now move on to more secular views of a humanist world. Some might say Common Core would be an example of that. Look at the sports world. I'm going to mention a name. Tim Tebow. Yeah, need I say any more? marginalized and minimized because of their faith. Here's the stats. We live in a world, in a country, where 85 million people will never, ever step foot in a church like this one. Now, how many people are in America today? 300 million, maybe? Somewhere? 85 million people will never, ever step foot in a church, and they have no desire to do so, ever. In our country, it is becoming taboo to refer to the Ten Commandments, to say the Pledge of Allegiance, or even sing the patriotic song, God Bless America. Why? Because God's in it. The secular world is rejecting God as we have known and followed him. Listen to Philip Yancey, great Christian author, who kind of sums it up. He says, we're quickly moving into a post-Christendom world. Here's what he says. In his book, Vanishing Grace, Philip Yancey writes about a Muslim man who told Yancey. This is a Muslim man telling Philip Yancey. I have read the entire Quran, and I can find in it no guidance on how Muslims should live as a minority in society. Everybody get that? Their worldview is that they're not going to live in minority. They're going to live as a what? Majority. Okay, so you get that. And then this man goes on to say, I have read the entire New Testament many times, and I can find in it no guidance on how Christians should live as a majority. So what does that maybe get the wheels spinning a little bit, make you think? Yancey comments. This He says, Christians best thrive as a minority, as a counterculture. Historically, when Christians reach a majority in society, they have yielded, get this now, yielded to the temptations of power in ways that are clearly anti-gospel. Are we there or are we there? So in light of all that, I said all that to say this. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live? How should we, as followers of Christ, that believe in his claims of being God, who forgives sin and redeems us, how should we live in this world, in this country, right now? In the book of 1 Peter, it's amazing, the apostle Peter, 
The same Peter who walked with Jesus and the other disciples. The same Peter who denied Jesus three times. The same Peter who was restored by Jesus to a place of ministry in the church. The same Peter who was told by Jesus, feed my sheep three times. That same Peter is now writing a letter to his readers. And he's asking them them same questions. How can we live in this society and live well according to the claims of Jesus? So if you have your Bibles, turn with, and I hope you do, as David Platt likes to say, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. It's in the New Testament. It's just before the book of 2 Peter, in case you were looking for it. So, starting a new series, a little background. Of course, Peter, one of the uh, apostles, one of the, one of the 11, I guess you could say. Paul would be then the 12th book was written in A.D. 63, so maybe 30 years or so after Jesus' death. The church had been spreading like wildfire. And this is just a year or so before that famous emperor Nero of Rome, who they say burned Rome, blamed it on the Jews, and fiddled while the whole thing was happening. The same emperor Nero was on the throne... And this letter, we think, is written just about a year or so before he did all that. A year or so before the persecution of Christians began in earnest. So there had already been an expulsion of Jews from Rome back in the late 40s. So 20 years or 15 years before, all the Jews in Rome had been told to get out. So they knew what was coming. And now Christians are starting to feel the effects of a country and a society that is putting them on the margins minimizing them. So I want to point out that although this letter of 1 Peter is really about suffering and trials and how do we live life and and separation from society, how do we live well, if you will, I want to point out that the, the persecution that was coming has not here yet. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Throughout this letter, Peter is going to ask and answer, or he asks implicitly, the way he writes his letter, he's going to ask two questions with two answers. One is, who are you? He's going to actually tell them who they are so that they know. Who are you as a Christian? And second, having then told them who they are, their identity, in other words, he's going to ask them and show them how can you commit to, in this term I'm borrowing from Steve Timmis, and by the way, a lot of this, uh, I want you to encourage you to read this book if you haven't read it, Everyday Church. This is uh, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis from the Crowded House over in the UK. Um, Just awesome book. It's a follow-up to their other book, Total Church. And it's a lot of how we're trying to live life as a family on mission together. They've really got some some unique perspective on that. So his term that I'm borrowing is live well. It's a British. Can you just see a British person saying that? Live well. How do you live well? That's what we're talking about. How do you live well in a world that is marginalizing you as a person. Maybe not persecuting you just yet. So this is the key thought throughout this whole series. That's why I titled it Living Well, Live Well. Christians are called by God to salvation, right? And we are also called to live well in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And here's where we got to make a departure from maybe a lot of Christian America, or what I would maybe call American doctrine. Unfortunately, over the last 50 years, the American church has developed a lot of their own doctrine. Um, Prosperity gospel, maybe, is part of that. But here's the thing. We need to start to realize that just because we live in the wealthiest nation that's ever existed on the planet, we need to realize our perception of the Christian life is skewed. The Christian life is not about having all the resources of the world through God's blessing. Now, God blesses, absolutely. But he brings rain, too, doesn't he? On the just and the unjust. There's a lot of unbelieving people who are doing very well out in the world. So apparently God's blessing them, too. So it's not just about God's blessing. And you know what? It's not even. Sometimes we boil down God's blessing into getting that rock star parking lot at Target every time I go there. Don't get me wrong. I, I like those parking spots, too. But is, being a Christian has got to be more than waiting and pleading for God's blessing and getting good parking spots at the mall. 
Living well is about whatever happens in life. And all of us here know what that means. Grief and disappointment. Even parking tickets. You know, it stinks when you forget to put money in the meter and you get that parking ticket on your... I mean, I've done that here in Coronado. Full disclosure. I'm on the record. And it stinks. You know, but I've got to live well in light of that, don't I? Being content in all things. Having peace about all things. Trusting that God is still in charge of all things. That's living well. Forgiving others when we are hurt by them. Boy, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Having joy in the midst of grief. Peter's going to talk a lot about that. You see, those things are the distinctives of Christian living. When the times are good and everybody's, the stock market's screaming and everybody's doing great and there's unemployment's low and when life's good, does anybody have a problem? Believer, unbeliever, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, nobody's got a problem when the economy's roaring. Things are plentiful, prices are low, life is good. Nobody's got a problem. So what makes a Christian different? See, the distinctives are when trouble comes, how do you respond to trouble? Those things that cannot be accomplished in our own strength. And in fact, I'm going to tell you, and Peter's going to tell you, that they are impossible without God to get through. They are impossible unless you are powered by His Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Now, we watched that video. We saw some anger and some hatred that's being thrown out persecution. We see it in the world. Um, Now, that's not mainstream in America yet. But it's coming. And just like in Peter's day, as we work through this, remember, Rome had not declared war on Christianity yet. But it was coming. Tradition has it that in a few years, just maybe four or five years from the time this book was, was written, this letter was written, Peter would be crucified like Jesus. Tradition has it that he claimed he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus and so asked to be crucified upside down. That's just tradition. Don't know if that's true or not. The point is, when Peter wrote these words, he knew that that kind of trouble was coming and he said, so you need to learn how to live the kind of trouble you're in now because your way of life is different. We're going to talk about that more in just a minute. So we need to go back, and I guess what I'm saying is we need to interpret these words from Peter's perspective because he didn't write this letter to you and me. We all know that, right? Bible study methods. Rule number one is who's the audience? Well, we are not the audience. So we kind of have to go back and find out what's going on in that day and what is Peter saying to his readers and I think we'll see the parallels because a lot of the truths that he's pointing out have to do with us as well. So Peter is telling them Uh, who they are, and then by application, us as well. Peter is telling them how to live well in light of who they are, no matter what the circumstances. So let's start in, let's start in our our study of 1 Peter, and we're going to look at their identity. He's going to remind them of who they are. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Peter says, An apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So look who's telling them who they are. First thing he says is that you're chosen. Verse 1, end of verse 1. You are chosen. Some translations may say you're elect, the elect of God, chosen ones of God. It's a new identity that he's trying to get folks to realize. And here's the thing. Their identity is defined not by where they live, not by where they grew up, not by where they were born, but where they were reborn in relationship to God. Special status has been given them because of what God has done. God chose them for salvation. The Holy Spirit changed their hearts and the atoning work of Christ was applied to their accounts. And I know there's a whole doctrinal discussion we could get into for weeks about what it means to be chosen. But let me just say this. It's a great thing to be chosen by God. 
It's a great thing to have the Holy Spirit change your heart and turn it from that black, selfish, dark heart into something that wants to worship God. It's a great thing for that to happen to you. Not Jewish people, he's saying. Not Gentile people. Because I think he's writing to both. It's very clear later on in the letter. He's not even talking about Roman ones. Not Jewish ones, not Gentile ones, not Roman ones. He's addressing them as chosen ones. You are defined in this life now by your relationship to God, period. So Americans, not American ones, you're what? Chosen ones. It's a good thing to be chosen. Then he says this. Calls them aliens. Chosen aliens. Now, if that's who they were, then that's who we are. Alien brothers and sisters. Look at the map. We've got a map up here. Kind of show you where, where they are. You can kind of see. I think we can kind of see. There we go. So you can see up in the left, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus. So most of these readers that he's writing to uh, are in what we would call modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. This is where he was writing to. This is the readers where they are at. And here's the thing. He's not giving them a sense of identity based on their homeland. So let's kind of make an application here. Most of you have a home, uh, and many of you don't call Coronado your home. You mean you weren't born here or raised here. How many were not born or raised here in Coronado this morning? Raise your hands. Just about everybody. Aliens. All of you. Some of you look more alien than others, by the way. I just want to point that out. Point is, you're here in Coronado, but you all are from somewhere else. And so these folks here, although they were born somewhere in Turkey, they were born in that part of the country. Maybe they were even raised in that part of the country. Maybe at one time they called themselves Bithynians or Cappadocians. They couldn't call themselves Turks because you see there was no Turkey yet, okay? But now Peter says you are a different kind of people. In the Bible, there has really always been two kinds of people in the world, right? You know what they are? Jews, Gentiles. So pretty much any Bible, the Old Testament you go to, what is God dealing with a separation between his people, the Jews, and between everybody else called the Gentiles, or the nations, or pagans, or whatever he wants to call them? That's the separation that we've always seen in Scripture. That separation changes in the New Testament. See, Christians become kind of a, a, a biblical third race. Right? So throw out the Jew, throw out the Gentile, you're now Christian. It's the third race, if you will. Christians do not belong to the rest of the classifications of people. Now, when we think about aliens, what do we typically think about? Yeah, Halloween, costumes, Roswell, Area 51, aliens... We've had a rash of alien movies in the last few years, haven't we? But that's what they are, Peter says, and that's what we are by application. What is true of them is true of us. Are you tracking with me this morning? They are elect, chosen, alien strangers in their homeland. We are elect, chosen, alien strangers right here today. That's our new identity, and we'll unpack that more in the coming weeks. Our new identity of who we are as God's people scattered. Peter's going to give God's people a new vision, a new way of looking at life. We need to grasp that. We need to take a hold of that, and we need to say what was true of them is now true of us. I would call that term paradigmatic. What happens to them happens to us. What Peter says is true of them is now true of us. And we need to start changing our minds and start thinking like Peter is telling his readers in the first century how to think. Two implications of this new identity that we have. The new life with, with a new vision of how to live well. First of all, we talked about it a little bit. Christians are marginalized. In Peter's day, 
They lived life on the margins of society. They were not mainstream. Not yet persecuted where they were fed to the lions and put on posts and set on fire yet. Not yet that kind of persecution. But the everyday persecution that comes when you live your faith in real life. How many of you know what I'm talking about when you live your faith in real life that somebody's going to look at you weird or think about you weird or maybe even say something about your beliefs and what you do, right? It happens, doesn't it? Go to a busy restaurant and have the whole table of you Christians stop, hand your, uh, hold your hands and bow your head for saying grace, and the whole restaurant might just look at you like, what? The Christians. Christians were being despised. They were being um, relegated to second-class citizens, I guess. Soon they would not be safe anywhere in the Roman world. And here's what Peter's going to tell them. Peter's going to say, look, don't expect anything different. This is who you are. This is where you are in life. Remember I said 85 million Americans have zero contact with the church? Their unbelievers have no desire to attend church? Now, I don't know about you. When I first read that, I felt a little discouraged, especially as a pastor. I'm like... What am I doing then? If they won't even come in and listen to the message, what am I doing? What are we doing wrong? And the the culture is getting so secular. You know what secular means? No spiritual thought, no spiritual input. It's all humanist and man-centered. That's a secular culture. And our culture is rapidly getting so secularized. Uh, Church attendance is just declining like crazy. You go to Europe. And these guys had a, had a bead on it right here because in Europe, entire churches are empty now. Great churches that used to hold thousands are empty. And we need to wake up to the fact that Christians live life at the margins of our culture. The church is not up front and central in the world. It's not. One might even say, maybe in some places it's more true than others, that the church is a result or a relic. A relic of a bygone era. You know, I was watching a, a Western on MeTV because without cable, your, your choices are limited, right? And you watch those old Westerns. And every one of those Westerns, as they're riding into the town, what's the first thing that you see? Church. It was part of their culture. And they built two things before they built anything else in the Old West. They built a school and they built a church. Because those were the two important things about society, education and faith. Bygone era. Yet, 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 yet. This is who God called us to be, and this is where God has placed us. So we need to learn how to live well in that place. We live on the margins of society. But the other implication is this. We can thrive on the margins of society if we recognize that something is true. You ever heard someone say, you know, there's someone who's always talking about heaven, always talking about the future, and, you know, there's that old saying that says, well, they're just too heavenly-minded to be of any what? Earthly use. Yeah. You know what Peter would say? It's only when you are heavenly-minded that you can be of any earthly use. Peter is describing to his readers a new vision. A new way of thinking about life, how to live, and how to live well. And this vision that he's going to give them as we unpack this in the coming weeks is going to govern all of their actions, all of their thoughts, all of their motivation, all of their relationships to include internal in their family and external in the world. Understanding of what happens to them in the world. And and this vision is what's going to keep them going in the times that are coming. So a new identity leads to a new vision of how to live this life. Three things we want to look at this morning quickly about the new vision, about how to live well. I kind of call this way of this thinking, this vision, man, that car is so bright. Wow. It's blinding me. I can't even see back there. Whew. Thank you. Tell them to move that car. Or shut the door. Thank you. Yeah. You got to wait a minute. The spots are in my eyes. You ever look up at the sun, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. New vision, future 
focused. Yeah, leave the one door open because we don't the air will just stifle in here. There, that's good. Perfect. Yeah. New vision, future focused. So I want you to think this morning about being future focused and what does that mean? And here's what it says. Let's go to the scripture. Let's read this. Verses 3 through 5, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again through, uh, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow. What a salvation he's describing. And he's showing us about our inheritance. You see, we Christians have an inheritance. We have a hope. We have a future. And this hope and this future, Peter's going to say, should so overshadow what you've got here on this earth that no matter what you have on this earth, no matter how much money you have, it looks like you got it from a flea market compared to what's waiting for you in heaven. Do we think like that today? Do we have that kind of perspective. Look what he says. He said the words imperishable. Right? It's long lasting this inheritance that we have, this glory that we have waiting for us with Christ. It's long lasting. It, it won't decay. It's permanent. It's never ending. It's undefiled, he says. Pure. It's whole. It's spotless. Unstained by evil. He says it's unfading. It's not affected by time. It's what we have Reserved for us, and it's what we're living for. The word reserved there that's used is is, is the perfect tense. It means something done in the past, but with a continued benefit forever. Uh, You know, those of you who have made reservations at a hotel, you're going on vacation, and you call ahead, you make a reservation, and you get there, and usually the reservation's there, but sometimes it got messed up, right? And then you're trying to scramble finding another hotel, another room or something. This happened to all of us. Right? So that reservation that you had in that hotel or that rental car or for whatever it is you're going for, it was not imperishable. It was not undefiled. It was not unfading. But our inheritance that we have waiting for us in heaven with Christ are those things. And Peter wants us to get our minds so wrapped around what's coming that nothing in this earth makes a difference anymore. Are you there this morning? Not only is our inheritance reserved for us, kept for us, nobody's going to cancel the reservation. We are reserved for it. We are protected by the power of God through faith. Nothing's ever going to deter us from getting to the place where we get our inheritance with Christ. It is kept for us, and we are kept for it. I just just love saying that. It is kept for us, and we are kept for it. Our inheritance in the future. Here's the picture. We are kept under armed God. God is not going to allow anything to happen to you and your inheritance. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. Boy, the future is bright with the gospel. We need to be future focused, not present preoccupied, I guess. Future focused means this. Future focused means that we can rejoice in the future even when suffering comes. Look at verse 6. In this, in this, in what? In this great salvation, in this inheritance. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. In this, he says, is your hope. In what? In my salvation. God chose me. Holy Spirit changed me. Now I have a relationship with God. I have an inheritance with Christ. Live well, Peter says. Keep your eyes and your heart on the future, on the inheritance, on what you get when you go to live with Christ forever. Understanding God's power, what Christ has done for us. The future, you see, the future of where we're going when we leave this earth is what we live for, and it is what we live by. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even when distressed by various trials. And that word distress can sometimes be translated grieve or griefing or grief. And you say, well, wait a minute now. Joy in grief. 
Is that possible? Peter says, oh yeah. But you can't be thinking about the future. You got to be thinking about the future, not the present, to get that. Trials when they come. Now, nobody is happy when trials come. I am not saying, I'm not being ridiculous and saying, okay, the next trial is coming. Woohoo, I'm ready. I'm not saying that. Don't think that. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to go through grief. Yet that's what happens in this world. So when it comes, Christians, your distinctive is you can rejoice in it. Why? Because I'm not thinking about now. I'm thinking about then. And I know that no matter what happens to me now, I got that waiting for me. Peter says, you do that, you dwell on that, the Holy Spirit's going to change your heart. Peter's talking about how Christians deal with loss and its diversity, and it should be distinctive. To the extent that we believe the gospel is the extent that our affections are set on eternity. That is the distinctive of Christians. I'm not talking about the British stiff upper lip idea. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the ability to just grin and bear it. Because we are talking about having grief and joy together at the same time. In other words, what Peter says is that trials and joy go hand in hand. Is that possible to comprehend? It is in the gospel. So in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, Peter says the Christian response, the appropriate response, is joy. Why? Because I am so thankful for being a chosen one of God, and I know what's waiting for me no matter what I go through on this earth. Peter says that's the joy you set your heart on. That's how you react. Trials do not threaten our integrities no matter how many tears may flow. We can rejoice in the greatest of suffering because we have such a great salvation. Future focused also means we understand suffering comes so that we can give God glory. Look at verse 7. It starts with so that. So in this we greatly rejoice, distressed by various trials. Why do they happen? So that. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials sometimes come on purpose so that God is glorified. You're saying, now, Peter, you didn't just say that. You didn't say maybe God allows trials on purpose. You didn't say God allows grief to come into our life on purpose. You didn't say that, did you, Peter? Yes, he did. Because that's how God will get glory. God is at work in and through our trials and our suffering. And it is God himself who takes us through those circumstances. And those, you know, sometimes suffering is used uh, as a reason or as an argument against the existence of God. Did you know that? The secular world will say, well, if their God is so good and God is so loving, then why is this happening? Christian, you better have an answer for that. If God is so good, why have I been unemployed for the last three years? Christian, you say that? If God is so loving, why did he allow my husband to be killed in that accident? If God is so, you fill in the blank. You know what the problem is with that logic? Here's the problem. Suffering is going to happen anyway. Taking God out of the equation doesn't change suffering. It does absolutely nothing at all. Everyone in this life is going to experience suffering. Everyone. No one is excluded from it. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how well you put up a front on the outside. Suffering and trials are universal because sin and death and misery are in the world and are of the world that we live in. No one escapes it. You know, I get asked a lot of questions. Many pastors get asked these questions. Is God allowing this to happen? Some might even ask, is God even causing this to happen? The answer, yes. And then they ask, 
Why? And I don't have a clue. I don't know why God does what God does. All right? I'm sorry. Can I admit that as your pastor? I don't know what God does sometimes and why he does it. Nor can anybody know what God does and why God does it. God's ways are, the Bible declares, unsearchable. You can try and figure out why God's doing what he's doing, and you cannot. So some ask, if God is so good, and God is so sovereign, and sometimes I even ask this myself, why did he allow Nancy to get this disease? Why did he allow that to come and totally mess up our lives? And I don't know. I don't know. But here's the thing I do know. You see, I do know God's character. Here's what I know about God that is not unsearchable. That he is wise. And that he is good. And that he is loving. And he is patient. And he is merciful. And he is loving. And he has proven himself to be all of those things. And where do you ask might he have proven himself to be all of those things? Well, we know it in his word we see it. For sure. Do you know where else we see all of that? At the cross. So that is where I must turn in the midst of my suffering and pain. That is where you must turn in the midst of your suffering and pain. That's the only place I can go to truly see what God is doing in the darkness that wants to consume me. That one act of love and sacrifice the man Jesus nailed to a tree and put on a hill outside Jerusalem. That one act interprets all of God's actions in all of our lives. That one act of sacrifice is the lens that we must view all of life and its circumstances through. Hear me this morning. You must see all of your life and everything that happens to it and to the ones around you through the lens of the gospel. Because if you do not, you will be consumed by your own thoughts. Romans 8.28, favorite verse, right? A lot of people like to quote that. God works all things together for good to those that love him or are called according to his name. How do I know that's true? How do I know that God is really there in the midst of all my trials and all my tribulations and all my pain and all my suffering? How do you know that that verse is true? Might be a better question. Answer, look to the gospel. Look to the truth of the cross. Verse 8. He says, and though you have seen him, Though you love him and have seen him, or though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Being future-focused means that through suffering, not only can we show the world that we belong to Christ, but we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Romans 8.28 is true. Remember, Peter is speaking to a suffering people. He may have known them. More likely, he did not. What he is telling them about suffering is true of every Christian. It is that term paradigmatic. And he says we can have inexpressible joy, filled with glory because of loving Jesus. Peter is talking about a glory that we get in our inheritance that is just stuffed full of eternity. Romans 8 also goes on to say that that we are heirs and joint heirs of Christ. We love that part. Because that means whatever Christ gets in the future, we get to take part of that. Did you know that? Believers, did you realize that? Our glory is tied in eternity to Jesus' inheritance. He's sharing it with us. What do most people do with their inheritance when they get it? What does Jesus do? Focus on that coming in the future, and we will have inexpressible joy. 
that glory that's based on what Christ has done was secured for us so that we might make it through this life and live well. Because we have set our hope and our mind on what is waiting for us, we are filled with this view and this vision of Christ, our future inheritance. It's reserved for us. I'll say it again. It is kept for us, and we are kept for it. So I want to close this morning looking at a couple things real quick. Why can, as we remind us, why can we have this hope? Look back at verse 3. Look at the words that describe our salvation. We're going to unpack this more next week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, because God is merciful, and he doesn't want you to stay in the place that you're at, unbelief and sin and eternal torment. He's merciful. And because of that, he caused us to be born again. Thank you, Lord, that you caused me to be born again. Because if it had been up to me, I would have never done it. Thank you for putting me in a place, Lord, where I had to think seriously about my situation in life. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you convicted me that my life was hell. Literally, hell. Born again. Caused to be born again. To a living hope. A hope is not in some pile of money. It's not in some job. It's not in some retirement. It's not in some place. It's in God himself who came and sacrificed himself for me. That's a great salvation. So living well on the margin of society is only a work of God. To live well when suffering and pain and trouble comes, we must turn back to the one who chose us and made a way for us. And now, Christians, I just want to mention this before we go. Remember this. When we haven't lived well in the face of struggles, there is only one thing for Christians to do. The two words that every Christian ought to be ready to speak the moment that they need it. You know what those two words are? You've heard me say them here before. What are they? Somebody help me. Two things that Christians should always be willing to do. Thank you. Repent and believe. That's modus operandi for a Christian. Sometimes it's every hour of every day. Repent to believe. Repent to believe. Repent to believe. The gospel is not a one-time salvation event. It continues to work in your life. We repent and believe when we don't rejoice in our suffering. We repent and believe when at times we are consumed by self-pity. We repent and believe when at times we are drowning in an ocean of sorrow and grief and we can't get our heads above water and feel like we're drowning in it. Yeah, repent. Be future-focused and believe what God has done for you and is waiting for you in the future. And at those times, even when we say life isn't what I thought it would be, you know what? Repent and believe. You know, there's that father who came to Jesus and said, heal my son, right? He's got demons in him and he throws himself in the fire. Heal him if you can. (laughs) What does Jesus say? With God, all things are possible. And the man says, I believe, yeah, help my unbelief. You see, our faith is weak sometimes. We need our belief to be helped, repent and believe. The sign of our calling is not that life is easier for Christians. Hear me. We don't thrive on the, we don't look forward to the trials. Nobody does. We're not breezing through life without difficulties. That is not the Christian life. What marks us out as Christians is that we don't run from God and we don't doubt God. We can run to Him. Because that's what a child does when they return to their father when they are in need. And we turn to our father and we say, Take me in your arms, Father. Father, you know my heart. You know my pain. You are the one I need to get me through this. That's what marks us out as the people of God. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We believe in the gospel. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, and maybe you're leaning into all this, maybe you're kind of checking this out, you're tracking a little bit, but you haven't quite accepted the truth and the reality of the gospel in your heart, I'm going to read this verse again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. 
to a living hope through, through, through the resurrection. All of these things are true about Christians because of Jesus' death and resurrection. We are purchased by his death. It is evidenced by the resurrection. The resurrection is the guarantee and the receipt of our inheritance. The resurrection is the down payment for our eternal life. Every great claim of Christianity rests on that one idea that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's the one fact we stake all of our hope on. If that's not true, yeah, we need to be eating and drinking and being merry because we have no future hope. But it is true. Jesus was resurrected. Eyewitnesses by the hundreds saw him. So you have to ask, if you're leaning into this thing called the gospel, what do you do with a man who said he was God, died and came back to life? No one's ever pulled that off before. We believe in the gospel. Finally, if you're a believer here this morning, might I ask this, what are you living for? Are you living for the treasure here or the inheritance in the future? If you want to live well in the present, you want to live well right now, keep your eyes fixed, keep your heart fixed on eternity. Being future-focused means we can rejoice even through suffering. We understand that suffering comes so we can give God glory. And through suffering, we can know we belong to Christ. We are secure in our salvation. Wow. What a start to the, to the letter. He's got much more to tell us. So I'm going to ask um, Damon and Bruce to come back up. And before I do that, though... I think we need to pray this morning. Robert, where are you at? Can you come up? Nate, it's our leadership team. I want you guys to come up. I want to invite those of you who need prayer this morning while they're singing, come over here and pray. And I want to, Matt and Cassie, I want you guys to come up. Those of you who are on our prayer list know that I sent out a prayer request for uh, Victor Nichols, is their son who is in the hospital right now fighting for his life with stage 4 brain cancer. And the diagnosis is not good, but they are strong believers. I met with them yesterday and I talked with them. They believe in the power of God to heal both mind and spirit and body. And so I've asked them to come this morning, and, uh, and we want to pray for them. And I want you guys, I'm going to ask you guys to come over here and we'll pray for them. Anybody else that needs prayer this morning? Um, Lisa, are you here this morning? Lisa Huntsman? No? There's that darn light again. Okay. Anybody else that needs prayer this morning, why don't you come up? If you, as we're singing, we're going to pray with these guys. If you need prayer this morning because you're suffering, you're going through something, maybe you just need a little encouragement. Maybe you need someone to pray. Maybe you need someone to come talk to you. Maybe you, you're seeking God. I, I don't know. Whatever it is that's in your heart right now, you come up. You come up and pray with us this morning. So let's pray together, and then we'll we'll have a time of of worship. Father, I I just pray for Matt and Cassie that their faith would be made strong in this time of suffering and grieving. Thank you for bringing them to our family, that we can love upon them, that they know that we're here for them, that we're praying for Victor, and that we're praying for his healing, Lord. We know that you can, but even if you don't, we're praying for his soul. We're praying for you to change his heart, to cause him to be born again to a living hope. Your people are crying out this morning, Lord, for Victor's soul and for the strength of Matt and Cassie to believe in a sovereign, loving, merciful, good father in the midst of their grief. Help them to live well by focusing on their future. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to come up after the service and talk with them. They're our family. They're from Washington State. They're here while their son's in the hospital. You come up and love on them. The people of God bear one another's burdens. And we're here to help you bear this burden.